a few months ago, we began looking at the Lord's Prayer, and um, we only got as far as that first line in the prayer, our Father in heaven. And so this morning, I'd like us to pick up uh, where we left off, and we'll recap that for those of you who weren't there um, a few months ago, but, be, but continue looking at the Lord's Prayer this morning. And so if you're able, um, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Um, this is a very familiar passage. We prayed it this morning at the end of the pastoral prayer. Uh, but it's Matthew chapter 6, and the Lord's Prayer begins in verse 9. And these are the words that Jesus um, gave to us. He said, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, this morning as we come before you in worship, as we look at your word, we thank you, Father, for giving us this pattern of prayer, for teaching us how we ought to pray. And Father, as we study this, this instruction that Jesus gave us, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, so that we can comprehend a bit more just how great your love is for us and how great your name is. We ask that you would show us, Father, as your sons and your daughters, how we are to approach your throne. And we ask these things, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Before we um, jump into the text, I, I want to make an observation, and that is um, that the Lord's Prayer is not an incantation. It's not a series of, of magic phrases that we repeat and all of a sudden get what we ask for. Instead, what Jesus gave us in the Lord's Prayer is more of an outline for how we ought to pray, for the types of things we ought to be asking for, when we go before our Father in heaven. And the reason I say this is, is through the biblical record. This morning, the, the passage we just read was in Matthew chapter 6, but there's a second reference to the Lord's Prayer, and that's in Mark's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, rather, Luke's Gospel in chapter 11. And if you look at these two passages um, in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, you'll notice that there are actually differences in the Lord's Prayer. Um, the overall structure of the prayers is, is consistent, the tone is consistent, but Luke's gospel omits a few uh, phrases like, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the, the prayer that we get in Luke's gospel appears to be something of a truncated version of the, the version we just read in Matthew's gospel. Now, in case anyone here is tempted to fall for the criticism of biblical skeptics, who may say that these differences uh, prove that the Bible is not inerrant, I want to point something out about these passages. And when you read the context of these passages in Matthew and in Luke, the gospel writers appear to be recounting different times that Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew's gospel, if you flip back a few pages, the, the portion that we're looking at actually begins in Matthew chapter 5. And in the beginning of that chapter, the gospel writer says that Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach. 
And then the next three chapters, five, six, and seven, recount Jesus's teachings. And colloquially, we often refer to this as the Sermon on the Mount. This was a sermon that Jesus literally gave on a mountainside to his disciples. And in the midst of this sermon, in chapter six, sort of halfway through the sermon, Jesus gives this instruction to his disciples about how they ought to pray to their Father in heaven. In Luke's gospel, however, the context, again, appears to be different. If you look at the beginning of Luke chapter 11, the gospel writer says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus goes on to do just that, and Luke records the, the prayer that Jesus instructs his disciples. And so what we appear to have is two different times in Scripture when Jesus instructs us how to pray. Again, the, the focus is the same, the structure, the, the tone is the same. But I think this underscores the point that our prayers should not be and need not be simply a, a formulaic repetition of a script, right? We do pray the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. That's a good thing. But it's important as we pray it to be thinking about what it is that we're saying. We aren't simply repeating words, repeating mindless phrases. And this idea that prayer itself is not a formula is something that you'll, you'll pick up when you look through the Bible. If you leaf through the pages of Scripture, you can literally count hundreds of prayers throughout the Bible, and many of them look very different from the Lord's Prayer. Um, so when we're looking at this prayer, whether we're looking at the version in Matthew or we're looking at the version in Luke, we need to understand again that Jesus is instructing us generally about how we are to approach God, about the things we should speak to him, the things we should have in mind, um, the things we should talk about, the things we should be praying for. So let's, let's jump into this text in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. And after you get through the introduction, our Father in heaven, um, you can really split the Lord's Prayer into two parts. The first part are things we ask uh, for, for God. Um, these are things that, that we're asking on God's behalf. And the second part um, tends to be things that we, we think we're asking for ourselves when you read through the text itself. This morning, I want us to focus on, on that first part. So let me, let me read that part again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in Luke's gospel, if, if you're there in Luke um, chapter 11, Jesus shortens this part of the prayer to Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So let's start with this first part, hallowed be your name. When we pray this, this phrase, hallowed be your name, which, which we pray every week, what exactly are we praying for? What do you have in mind when you say, hallowed be your name? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever used the word hallowed or even heard the word hallowed apart from the Lord's Prayer, right? It's just not a word we, we hear in normal conversation. And if you look for synonyms, um, I'm afraid they aren't terribly helpful either. Um, many translations use this word hallowed, which again is not a word that we typically use in normal conversations. There are some translations, like the New Living Translation, which renders this text, may your name be kept holy. Um, but again, I would submit to you, I don't know that that helps us that much in really understanding what Jesus is telling us to pray for, because in our society and the modern era, we don't typically talk about things that are holy, right? Um, outside of the church context, um, in the workplace, in most school environments, 
at community functions, again, you don't typically hear people talking about things that are holy. It's a, it's a word that's generally restricted to the church. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name or may your name be kept holy, what exactly should we have in mind? What exactly are we praying for? Well, fundamentally, when you look at the definition of holiness, when you look at how it's used in Scripture, holiness comes down to separation, separation of two things. And let me give you an example from Scripture. The Apostle John records an incident around the festival of Hanukkah when Jesus was walking in the temple, and some Jews come up to Jesus, and they ask him a pretty straightforward question. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, I think many of you here know what's implied by this term Messiah, but let me just refresh your memory, because the Messiah was the one who was promised. He was the one who would rescue the Jewish people. He would be powerful. He would be a king. Um, Micah prophesied about the Messiah this way. He said, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah... Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And so when these Jews come up to Jesus and ask him, are you the Messiah? This was a very big deal. They were asking him, are you this promised king? Are you this ruler who was prophesied by the prophet Micah? And let me remind you one more thing about the context, because the Apostle John doesn't tell us who these Jews were who came up to Jesus, but we're not talking about a large community here. Um, historians um, believe that the entire population of Palestine in Jesus' day was about half a million people. And just as a point of comparison, that's, that's slightly less than the, the Washington, D.C. metro area today. And so many of the people we read about in Scripture knew Jesus from an early age. They were uh, individuals who grew up with him, some of them were his family members, and even if they didn't know him personally, they almost certainly knew him by reputation. And so the setting for this, this question is striking. Here Jesus is during the, the festival of Hanukkah. He's in the temple. He's surrounded by people who may have known him. If they didn't know him personally, they, they almost certainly knew him by reputation. And they're asking him this question, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who was promised? The reason I'm bringing up this story is because of Jesus' response. And Jesus' words um, are, are very interesting. He doesn't directly answer the question. He doesn't directly say, yes, I'm the Messiah, or no, I'm not. But he does say something that's, that's very striking. He says, I and the Father are one. And then he goes on to explain that, that he, that Jesus, is the one whom the Father set apart as his very own, and sent into the world. And if you remember the story after this, the Jews pick up stones to kill him because he has just claimed deity. He has claimed to be God, um, that he is one with the Father. But what I want us to focus on this morning is that phrase that Jesus uses when he says, he is the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. That phrase, the one whom the Father set apart, is based on the same Greek word that Jesus uses when he instructs us to pray, hallowed be your name. And so another way of praying this part of the Lord's Prayer, when we say hallowed be your name, another way of thinking about this as you're praying 
is to pray that God's name would be set apart. Before we rush over this point, let me make a, an observation about God's name being set apart, because if you pause and really contemplate this idea, this idea of God's name being different, of being set apart, you realize and recognize very quickly that in our culture, in our day and age, we tend to chafe against this idea of separation. You know, particularly here in America, as a general rule, we view ourselves as egalitarian, as aspiring towards equality of all. Um, Thomas Jefferson articulated this idea very well in that famous line in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And if you listen to public discourse today, um, a lot of the arguments you hear are focused on inequality. People of different political persuasions debating how much inequality exists, why it exists, where it came from, what we ought to do about it. And so to say that we should be praying for inequality, even between God and people, friends, I, I think this idea is not something that we tend to embrace, um, certainly in American culture, but I would submit to you that even in the church, we tend not to think of God as hugely separate from at least the people of God. We tend to think of ourselves as Christians as roughly on the same level as God. We don't tend to think of ourselves as entirely different, entirely distinct, entirely on a lower plane. You know, I think when we, 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 when we pray, hallowed be your name, what we often are praying is help the Christian community be respected in the world. And God too, but we, we often equate the two, right? But friends, this isn't what Jesus instructs us to pray. And don't get me wrong, it's not that we shouldn't pray for these things. It's not that we shouldn't pray for, for peace for the church. It's, it's not that we shouldn't pray for sanctification, for separation from sin. These are things we should pray for. But when we pray the Lord's Prayer, when, when Jesus instructs us to pray, hallowed be your name, he's giving us a very deliberate thing to be praying for. It's a very deliberate and specific prayer for the separation of God's name, that God's name would be distinct, would be different. And this, of course, begs the question of what is God's name to be set apart from? If God's name is to be hallowed, if it's supposed to be separate, what is it supposed to be separate from? Well, the implication clearly is that it's supposed to be set apart from everything else, that God's name is on a certain plane, everything else is distinct. It's distinct from, from your name, from my name, from society, from the world, from other ideas and so-called deities. God's name, we are instructed to pray, should be seen as wholly distinct. You know, there's, there's a man in the Bible who I think had a much better grasp of, of what this meant for God's name to be hallowed, for his name to be set apart, to be distinct. And he recognized that if God's name was hallowed, if God's name was, was set apart, this wasn't something esoteric. This wasn't something that didn't affect him, the people. It's not something that necessarily happened without any change in the environment or those around him. And this man was John the Baptist. I want to remind you that at one point, it wasn't entirely clear that 
Jesus was different than John the Baptist. In fact, some people thought that it was John the Baptist who might be the Messiah, not Jesus. Some people thought it might be John the Baptist. At the outset, they had similar ministries. John the Baptist and Jesus both had followers. They were contemporaneous um, in preaching. They were both baptizing followers as well. And the confusion was so great that some Jews went to John the Baptist, and they pointed out to him that his ministry was in jeopardy, that everyone was going to Jesus instead of John the Baptist. And I think many of you probably recall John the Baptist's response, that famous, famous response of his. And when he put it very bluntly, he said, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. Now, I don't know if John the Baptist knew the implications of what he said when he said Jesus must become greater and I must become less. You know, the Gospels don't tell us what he was thinking, and, and the, the focus of the story largely shifts away from John the Baptist after this, shifts to Jesus. But we do get glimpses of what happens, because by the end of John's ministry, when he was in a prison cell, when an executioner came to meet him, it was clear that Jesus had become greater, and John the Baptist had become less. You know, John was a prophet, but he was a man. He was a man whose ministry largely died with him. Jesus was and is the person he claims to be, one with the Father. And his death did not tarnish his ministry. It did not diminish his ministry. Instead, it was the pinnacle of his demonstration of his love for us. And death, of course, could not keep a hold on him. In his resurrection, Jesus validated his claim as the one whom the Father set apart as his very own. You know, if you fast forward to today and think about the two, I don't think anyone conflates the two. John the Baptist, sure, is, is still respected uh, by people around the world, but his name is distinct from and is not exalted like God's. And friends, if we are serious when we pray, hallowed be your name, when we're praying for God's name to be separated, we need to pray this consciously and intentionally. That God's name would be exalted, yes, absolutely. But this means by implication something else, and that is that everything other than God's name, your name, my name, our situation, the entire worldly system, that all of this would become less in comparison to God's name. Just as John the Baptist said, he must become greater, I must become less. You know, there's an aphorism that a rising tide lifts all boats. And it's easy, I think, when we pray, hallowed be your name, for us to really have this in mind, that the Christian community and God's name, that all of this would be lifted up together. And sometimes that happens, but that's not what Jesus instructs us here. He's not praying for all of this to be exalted. I want to put this um, very personally this morning, because I know some of you here are going through very difficult situations, difficult situations um, with your health, perhaps, with work situations, with family members. 
And there could be many different reasons um, that you're experiencing these trials this morning. I'm not going to stand here this morning and try to explain why they're happening to you. But I want to ask you a question and put it in your own personal context. If in God's providence, the things that you are experiencing today were required in order for God's name to be exalted, to be separated, would these trials be worth it? Because I think that gives us a touchstone of, of how important, how much we value God's name. If our worst days are justified simply so that God's name can be hallowed, I think it gives us a sense of how much we think his name ought to be set apart, ought to be hallowed. And when I ask this, I suspect there's, a, there's an instinctive reaction. It's a, it's a natural reaction, I think, that many of us have, and that is that it doesn't seem just or fair for our name, our situation, to be debased or to be challenged so that God's name can be exalted. I don't know that many of us would verbalize it this way, but I expect that, that many of us probably think it, even if subconsciously. And I want you to, to pause and consider the implications of this reaction, because the reality is that reaction makes sense. We, we shouldn't want our names to be debased if and only if God's name isn't really all that much different or better than ours. If he's just a slightly more powerful version of the good people that we know, then I'm not sure that we should be praying for his name to be hallowed, to be set apart. And of course, we know from Scripture, we know from the natural created order that God really is far greater than anything or anyone we know. But friends, we have this sinful tendency. We have this tendency to try to pull him down to our level, to try to pull him down to our plane, to try to create some type of equality between us and God. And I think, friends, this is one reason why Jesus then instructed us to pray the next part of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You know, kingdoms are things that we think we understand and appreciate, right? When we pray, your kingdom come, I think we often mean something like this. We're praying, help lots of people become Christians so that we as Christians will have a more comfortable existence in this world. Friends, um, I don't know if that's what you intend. I think sometimes that's what um, people have in mind when they're praying this prayer. And I want to say that I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said, your kingdom come. And the reason I say this is that Jesus talks about his idea of his kingdom on multiple occasions in Scripture, and it looks quite a bit different from this description. In fact, um, Jesus told the religious leaders of his day very directly that the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. You may have read this passage before, but it's important for us to pause for a moment because it's really a striking statement. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So what is it? If we can't observe the kingdom of God around us, then what is it? Where is it? And Jesus went on to say, he said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, by which he meant it's in the hearts of believers, that the kingdom of God represents the change that the Holy Spirit works within us when he changes our hearts. The Apostle Paul defined it this way. He said, the kingdom of God 
is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, we should be praying for changed hearts, for our own hearts, for the hearts of those around us, that that our hearts would properly set apart and exalt God for who he is, that, that we would value him and his name so much that everything else, including difficult personal experiences, that these, if they are necessary for his name to be exalted, would be worth it. Now, I probably haven't said anything that's terribly new for many of you, but I do want to underscore something because I think we have a tendency to say, well, sure, the kingdom of God comes in our hearts, but if more around us become believers, then the society will change and we will have a Christian nation or we'll have something resembling a Christian nation. And I think there's a real danger, especially within the church in our place and time, to conflate God's kingdom with political systems. When Jesus was taken before the Roman tribunal and he faced um, Pilate, the Apostle John records a dialogue that is important for us in understanding what we're praying for when we pray for God's kingdom to come. Jesus told Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. And then he repeats, but my kingdom is not from this world. You know, when we hear Jesus' statement, there's, um, there's something in that that's easy for us to overlook and, and to ignore because throughout history, if you look back, you'll find instances where there have been political leaders who were followers of Jesus. And you'll find some political communities where there were many believers there, and, and that is certainly a good thing. That is something we should be praying for. It's something we should be grateful for when we see that happening. But here's the thing, the political system in which those believers operated were never and never can be the kingdom of God. Friends, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're not praying for a Christian political community on earth, for a country or a society that's governed by certain rules, even if these rules comport with God's law because there is no such thing as a Christian political kingdom on earth. In fact, such a concept is idolatrous. If Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world, then we must not believe we can create a Christian kingdom that is of this world. It substitutes what is false for what is true. It replaces the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit for the work of man. Even good political work, the best actions of believers to do justice and to do mercy, this never comes close to the grandeur of the Holy Spirit's work, which is the true kingdom of God in our hearts. I want to address a question that some of you might have as you, as you hear these words of Jesus, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. And as you think about these two things, I think, there's an instinctive reaction that these things are intention when you really understand them. If by hallowed be your name, we're saying God's name should be set apart, set apart so much that he becomes greater and we become less. And if by your kingdom come, we're asking for peace and for joy in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. How can these things both be true at the same time? How can we become smaller 
and at the same time experience more peace and joy. The reality is, you know, our name, our condition tend to crowd out God um, without Jesus. But these things are wretched substitutes. Without God or without an accurate appreciation and respect for his greatness, we may have the illusion of control. We may have the illusion of satisfaction, of peace, of power. But these things that we're experiencing are actually a mirage. To the extent that God's name is debased or is not exalted as highly as it ought to be, and to the extent that our hearts remain unchanged by the Holy Spirit, friends, this is a terrible condition. Only by praying for us to move aside, for his name to be exalted, and for our names to be changed, can we experience true joy and true peace. You know, as we close this morning, I want to remind you of one more thing, and that is we jumped right into the Lord's Prayer in this, this first part of the Lord's Prayer, and we jumped over that first introduction, our Father in heaven. But I want to remind you about that because that really frames everything we've been talking about. And before we pray for this, before we pray for God's name to be exalted, for us to be put in our proper place, for our hearts to be changed, before we pray that, we make this confession, our Father in heaven. And if you look at the fathers who Jesus talked about in the Bible, the, the father, for example, of the prodigal son, or the father who prepares this lavish banquet for his son, the fathers that Jesus describes are more lavish in their intent than their children could ever imagine. They have a better vision of the future than these children could have asked for. And if we truly pray our Father in this prayer, we are acknowledging, we aren't simply addressing our Father God, but we are acknowledging that the person we are coming to thinks bigger and better thoughts than those that we're about to pray. You know, the Apostle Paul put it this way, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. And we pray not only to our Father, but we pray to our Father in heaven. And as you look at Jesus' use of this phrase in heaven, it often refers to God's ability to do what he proclaims. And so we make this profession of faith when we come to him in the Lord's Prayer. We make a profession of faith that we're coming before someone who has bigger and greater and better plans than we could even ask for. And it's a profession of faith that he has the ability to carry out what he has asked, what we, we are going to ask for. And then it's in this confidence, with this, with this confidence, that then we can pray, hallowed be your name, your name be exalted, put us in our place. And that we can pray, your kingdom come, that our hearts would be changed, not necessarily political systems, but that our hearts would be changed so that we can find joy and peace that are only found through Jesus. Let us pray, friends. Father, we thank you that we get to come before you, that you are this great God, that you know better things than we could imagine, that you have the ability to carry them out and the intention to carry these things out. Father, we see your greatness through Scripture, and we see your greatness through your working around us. 
Father, we pray this morning that your name would be exalted, that more people would see it, and that we would see it even more. And Father, if this requires us to become less, Father, we pray for that. We pray that we would not crowd out your majesty and your greatness. And Father, we know that sin still tugs at our hearts, still tugs us to resist. And so, Father, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit, that your kingdom would come in our hearts fully, that you would continue to sanctify us and change us, that we would want to become more like you, and that we would want to glorify and exalt your name. We ask all these things, Father, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.